This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, looking this evening at verses 11 through 21. 2 Corinthians 12, 11 through 21. Paul has been boasting something he obviously is not comfortable with, nor is it characteristic of him. And yet he has been doing that, and now he sort of returns a little bit to reality uh, in verse 11. I've been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps... When I come, I may not find you as I wish, and that you may not find me, uh, you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity sexual immorality and sensuality that they've practiced. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for your word this evening. We pray uh, for your help and your grace as we study it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Yes, Paul boasted, and yes, he had a lot to boast about if he was so inclined to do so. And in fact, he did boast in those things, uh, as we saw this morning in Philippians, uh, where Paul boasts in his Jewish background. Well, he does a little bit of that in chapter 11. He boasts of the astonishing nature 
of the suffering he endured as he carried out his apostolic commission. That list of events that we find again toward the end of chapter 11. He boasts of the pressure daily of his anxiety for all of the churches. But then as we saw last time, he turns that around, he turns that on its head and begins to boast in his weakness, in those things that in the eyes of the world would would discredit him. Uh, He mentions being lowered in a basket out of the wall there in Damascus shortly after his conversion, uh, which seems like it would not be a whole lot compared to much of the suffering that he lists. But in fact, it was the first evidence of his new life as a believer, having to entrust himself to the hands of others to deliver him to safety. He does mention the glorious revelation, vision that was given to him that he reluctantly and in an almost a distant way describes seeing, hearing things that, as he says, he was not permitted to tell. And in chapter 12, he describes that, and yet he also tells about what seems to be, in his mind at least, his greatest weakness, and that is this thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, that God had given to him to counterbalance the uh, sublimity of the uh, revelation, the, the, the elation of that, to keep him from being puffed up, from becoming proud. Uh, He's also humbled by this thorn. And he describes how three times he prayed that God would remove that. And the Lord's answer always to him was, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So in effect, God said, No. No. You are uh, given this sign for a reason. It forces you to see yourself as weak. And in that weakness, my power, my strength, can be seen. And so Paul's response to that is, as he says in verse 9, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And he concludes, for when I am weak, I am strong. And so Paul's willing to boast in those things that would make him appear weak, and even weak to himself, uh, a disadvantage to himself because he recognizes that God's power is in those things. And so paradoxically, by boasting in his weakness, he is proclaiming his strength and yet not his strength, but the Lord's strength in him and in his weakness. Well, as we come to this closing section of chapter 12, uh, as Paul has described as boasting, but yes, ultimately is boasting in his, in his own weakness, uh, he begins to speak of, again, of his relationship to the church in Corinth. Uh, Paul suffered a wrong from this church. It was a church he himself planted. Some of these people had come to Christ through his own direct personal ministry. And yet, uh, at least a segment of the church had been turned against him. Apparently, people there were not willing to stand up for him, but seemed to listen to the false teachers who had come in their midst. And so, Here, Paul, once again, as he begins to wrap up this letter, presses his case upon them and presents them with some marks of a true apostle, some marks of a true servant of Christ in their midst. And as we've seen earlier in the letter, this is sometimes 
uh, given, these things are given with an eye toward those false apostles, those false teachers, and in some cases very directly here by way of Paul contrasting himself with them. Well, first of all, it's evidence of his authenticity, that he is the real deal. Paul uh, mentions to them these bits of apostolic evidence in his own life and ministry. We see this in verses 11 and 12. He says, I've been a fool. You forced me to it. Now, Paul has already expressed his reluctance in boasting. And as he was going on, he said, I'm speaking like a madman. He said, this is insane. And the only reason he did it was for the Corinthians' sake, certainly not for his own, any need to satisfy his ego, uh, but to convince them that he was, in fact, a true servant of Christ. He says, you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you. Um, It's interesting Paul would say that and would use that word. You may recall earlier in this epistle, in chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says of the Corinthians, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Uh, Paul says, I ought to have been commended by you. Instead of forced to defend himself, forced to speak in the way that he did, uh, he should have been commended by them to these false teachers who came in. Now, Paul could say of them, they themselves were his letter of commendation, and that really is the first apostolic evidence was that this church existed, that these people there had become Christians in response to Paul's ministry, as the grace of God was at work in him and through him. Paul says, I ought to have been commended by you, and in fact, that they existed at all was a commendation of Paul, a commendation of his true apostolic ministry. But there was another thing Paul mentions, not just the Corinthians themselves as evidence of the reality of his call, but also the superior ministry that he exercised. Paul says, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles. Now, maybe he's engaging in a little bit of boasting there, although he doesn't call attention to it. Uh, We don't know in what way specifically Paul thought himself not inferior. Uh, Criticism was brought against Paul's presence, against Paul's speaking. Um, I think Paul's just referring to himself as a package, as the whole thing. Who he is, is called by God, the gifts God has given him, the service that he's rendered to the churches. In no way is he inferior. He really is second to none as a minister of the gospel and as an apostle. And you get that sarcastic tone again to these super apostles. Paul says, I'm not inferior even though I'm nothing. Well, do the math. If Paul is not inferior to them and he's nothing, then they're at least nothing. And I would guess in Paul's mind they're less than nothing because they're doing positive harm to the church. I'm not inferior to them, even though I'm nothing. You must feel that tension of Paul wanting to commend himself there, and yet coming back to the reality, he is nothing. And that in itself is evidence of his ministry, that he sees himself in that way. And he speaks in verse 12, the superiority of his ministry. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. Signs and wonders and mighty works. Uh, Signs and wonders was a phrase really from the Old Testament used uh, of any number of things, but particularly of the Exodus. God bringing out his people out of Egypt with signs and wonders, signs 
giving authenticity to it as a work of God. Wonders, of course, striking awe in those who uh, encountered it. And then he also speaks here of mighty works, uh, a manifestation of divine power, again, to confirm something as a work of God. Uh, we see this in the, uh, in the Gospels, the terms that the Gospel writers use. Um, Matthew and Mark and Luke tend to use a term indicating uh, a manifestation of divine power, mighty works. Uh, John tends to use the word a sign, indicating the significance of it. But Paul picks those up here and says that through his ministry they saw these things. And not only that, Paul says, they were performed among you with utmost patience, uh, with endurance, could be one way to do it, or perseverance. Uh, as Paul endured these things, he continued to serve. These evidences were there, and Paul served with patience. Uh, not in a hurry, not easily frustrated, certainly not brought off task, but persevered in his work. Uh, John Calvin comments on, on Paul's statement there, Such heroic virtue is like a heavenly seal by which the Lord marks out his apostle. And so he says in verse 13, And what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Uh, a note of irony there. Uh, and Paul was very careful not to take help from them. He, again, did not want to be open to any charges of uh, taking advantage of them, although even that came around to haunt him, as we'll see in just a few minutes. And that's the first thing that Paul points to, is the evidence of his ministry. That this church existed, humanly speaking, because of Paul. That the signs of an apostle, uh, the evidence of an apostle, the marks, which were the signs and the uh, wonders and the uh, works of power, the mighty works that were done, were performed there. And so Paul points to those things. So that really, I mean, as Paul comes to verse 13, uh, the Corinthians' failure to stand with him, to stand for him, to defend him rather than abandon him, is really inexcusable. They were just led astray. At least uh, a number of them were. And so... Paul gives this, this evidence, this apostolic evidence. Well, what about in our day? How would you measure a servant of, of Christ in our day, whether it's a, a minister or an elder or even a, a believer in the church who's ministering in some way? Well, I think Paul is right when he describes signs and wonders and mighty works as the marks of an apostle. And uh, at least in the biblical New Testament sense, we don't have those around anymore. Uh, but I think that uh, we certainly do well to look uh, at the character, to look at the fruit, fruit in terms of ministry, uh, what has someone's service, what has their work produced? Uh, does it produce growing believers? Does it produce discord and strife? Uh, what is the nature of, of, of the character? Uh, those kinds of things that Paul points to here. We wouldn't expect the marks of an apostle among us, but we would expect... Uh, the evidence in terms of fruit of the Spirit, in terms of uh, growing in Christ, in terms of love for Christ and love for believers, love for the lost and those kinds of things. And so we come back to having to look at the evidence. What is the fruit of a, of a, of a ministry? And that's what Paul is pointing to here. But not just the apostolic evidence. Paul also points to the evidence of his own heart uh, in their midst, an apostolic heart. And we see this in verses uh, 13 through 18. Uh, Paul mentions, as we saw in verse 13, 
that he did not take support from them. And he responds to that with a, with a bit of a note of sarcasm. Forgive me for that wrong. You know, maybe I should have taken support from you. I wronged you in trying to spare you that. Uh, well, of course he didn't. He's just being ironic. But then he points in verse, he, he's serious again in verse 14. Here for a third time I'm ready to come to you. And again, he says, my policy is the same. I will not be a burden. Why not? For I seek not what is yours, but you. Again, in the face of these accusations that Paul was just after whatever he could get from them, which are totally foolish, Paul says that's not true. In one sense, he wants more than that. He doesn't want their possessions, their support, their giving. He wants them. He wants them for Christ. He wants them to recognize who he is. And he he's reasons in uh, verse 14. Children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Paul sees himself as a spiritual father to them. And, and therefore sees his role as providing for them, as giving to them, as ministering to them, not expecting them to do for him. And he puts it this way. Uh, he says in verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I don't know a more succinct description of ministry uh, than to spend and be spent for the soul of another or the soul of others. If I love you more, he says, am I to be loved less? And so Paul points his heart, his desire is for them. He doesn't want whatever they can give him. He's not there to, to gain from them. He's rather there to give. He's rather there to practice sacrifice on their behalf so that he can present them faultless before the throne of Christ, so that he can see them grow to maturity in the Lord. Now, that's great. But it can also be misunderstood, as we see. We see his heart in that, and yet, even that was taken and thrown back in Paul's face and used against Paul. Look at what he says in verse 16. But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. You see, that's Paul's strategy. No, he's not going to take support from you. So he can win your trust. And then he's going to collect that offering to go to Jerusalem. And when he does that, he's going to line his pockets. He's just trying to win your trust by not taking support from you. Reading... Uh, I recently read, as I told you, the, uh, the God Delusion by Dawkins and just recently finished The Dawkins Delusion by Alistair and Joanna McGrath. Try to keep up there. Who's getting deluded? Um, but I remember McGrath said in the book, he, he, uh, he made some comment about what a Christian would say to Dawkins, but he, then, he, then he took something Dawkins said in the book, a, a reply Dawkins would make that basically makes dis, discourse uh, uh, go no further, which is... Dawkins would reply to a Christian, but of course you would say that. You know, if we said something like, well, God has to reveal his saving plan in Christ to you, Dawkins would reply, well, of course you would say that. So that anything you say as a Christian, he could turn around and say, well, of course you would say that, being a Christian, in your delusion. You know, that you're deluded, that God exists, you're living in this, this, this land of make-believe. Well, of course you would say that. So anything you say is like punching a marshmallow. Of course you would say that. That's what Christians say. So the argument really can proceed no further. Well, that's kind of what's going on with Paul. Paul recognizes he can defend himself, that he accepted no support from him. But his critics would say, well, of course he would say that. It's all part of the game. It's all part of his scheme. It's all part of the con. 
to win your trust and then take your money. That's exactly what he says. Uh, Look at verse 18, or rather verse 17. He says, did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go, sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? We saw earlier, if you look back in chapter 8, where, where Paul is describing this collection of funds to go for the relief of believers in Jerusalem who were suffering, uh, the integrity that Paul displays in handling this money. Look at chapter 8, verse uh, 16. Paul says, Thanks be to God who put it in the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. Not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's going to you of his own accord. With him we're sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching the gospel. Not only that, but he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that's being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and show our goodwill. We take this course... What course? Well, a group of men, chosen, men of integrity, men of character. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that's being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother whom we've often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner, fellow worker for your benefit. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Well, Paul goes to some length there to reassure the Corinthians as to the character of these men who actually would be the ones handling the collection and all of that because he wants them to know that it's being done with integrity. They can trust these men, that nothing funny is going on with the collection of this offering. But apparently there were questions about that, or at least Paul anticipates that there would be because of their past actions. Uh, I urge Titus to go, sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Paul appeals not just to himself, but to the men Uh, with whom he was involved in this offering uh, as he tries to head off this idea that the whole thing is some kind of sinister scheme where Paul wins their trust by not accepting support and then rips them off by collecting this offering. Sometimes you just can't win and you just have to leave your reputation in God's hands. And so Paul is kind of faced with that argument, well, of course you would say that. Uh, But this is his reply. It's just to appeal to the integrity of himself and the other men who were involved in that. But we see Paul's heart really summarized in that statement, I seek not what is yours, but you. Paul is not in it for what they can offer him. He is in it for what he can offer them and to see them grow in the Lord. So the evidence, the apostolic heart, the last thing Paul mentions uh, as, a, as a mark of his uh, authentic call to the apostleship, surprisingly enough, is fear. And he describes this in verses 19 and following. Paul says, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Paul recognizes, as he said in other places, that ultimately he stands or falls not on what they think of him, but on what the Lord thinks. He answers to the Lord whether they accept him, whether they reject him, Paul really has no control over that. Uh, his ultimate concern is not to defend himself. 
It is to save them and protect them from false teachers for the sake of the Lord. Paul says we speak before the Lord. It's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ. And so Paul comes back to this fact that his primary concern isn't the opinion of these Corinthian believers. It's God's opinion of him. It's Christ's opinion of him. Because that's the one he serves. And they serve, he serves in the presence of Christ. And he says, all for your upbuilding, beloved. And there he twice emphasizes his goodwill toward them, his desire to build them up, not tear them down, not take from them. Uh, calling them beloved, maybe trying to soften his tone a little bit after some sarcasm that he's had in there. It's pretty hard words. Uh, assuring them that he does love them, that he does care about them. Well, what's the fear? Well, Paul describes a couple of things he's afraid of and concerned about. One is fear over condition of the church. Uh, verses 19 and 20. Uh, we've already seen in verse 19, he's concerned for their upbuilding, but he says in verse 20, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish. And that you may find me not as you wish. Interesting, when people are away, when we're separate, separated from people, we tend to form an idea of people. It tends to be an ideal, uh, and that can be good or bad. We tend to form maybe an ideal of someone that's very good. And then when we meet them again, they don't quite measure up to that ideal. We come back to the reality that they were a real person. Maybe husbands, wives, when you've been separated, uh, you sort of take an idea in your back, and five minutes later you're having some silly argument over something. But sometimes that ideal can be very negative. We form this, this, this low opinion of someone. When we finally encounter them, we realize they're not quite the devil incarnate that we had in our mind. Well, Paul is concerned about certainly what they would think of him, But he's also concerned about what he's going to find when he comes to the church. He has fear over the condition of the church, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Paul's been writing to the church, but he's very much concerned what he might find when he comes to the church, all of these kinds of things that have been taking place. But he's also concerned, he has fear over something else, and that is fear of a broken heart. Look at what he says in verse 21. Along with what he says in verse 20, he says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Paul says, not so much, I'm afraid I'm going to find these things. Well, he does say that, but then he goes on, he says, I'm afraid I'm going to have to mourn over that. He says, I'm afraid I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to find these things, and my heart is going to be broken all over again for you. And that, as much as anything, is a mark of the reality of Paul's apostolic office. Because there's not one of those false teachers who would mourn over the condition of the church in Corinth. Paul says, I'm afraid that when I'm going to come, when I come to you, I'm going to find all of these sins. And I'm afraid that it is going to cause me to mourn and have a broken heart. 
Phillips Brooks, who was an Episcopalian minister in Boston, uh, wrote uh, the hymn, A Little Town of Bethlehem, and also, also the namesake of Brooks Wyckoff, uh, penned these words. He said, to be a true minister to men, and I certainly would take that as a, as a minister of the gospel, but you know this if you've ever tried to minister to another person, whether discipling or teaching or just on an informal basis, getting to know somebody and trying to be salt and light for Jesus. He says, to be a true minister to men is always to accept new happiness and new distress. The man who gives himself to other men can never be a wholly sad man, but no more can he be a man of unclouded gladness. To him shall come with every deeper consecration a before untasted joy, but in the same cup shall be mixed a sorrow that it was beyond his power to feel before. That's what Paul is describing here. Uh, Paul experienced great joy in his ministry. Read Philippians and how excited Paul is about the church and what's going on. But you read a letter like 2 Corinthians and you realize that Paul did experience very much that mixture both of joy uh, but tinged with the sadness uh, of a broken heart. Uh, because when you minister to people, you will experience joy, but you will also have your heart broken. And that's what Paul's very much afraid of as he contemplates returning to Corinth. Well, the evidence of genuine ministry, the heart for Christ and for people, uh, concern, even fear over the condition of the church, condition of people, uh, these are certainly oddities in, this, in that self-promoting, self-serving culture of Paul's day, which, come to think of it, isn't all that different from the culture of our own. But those kinds of things are evidence of the real thing. They're evidence of the kind of thing you will find uh, in servants of Christ who do boast in their weakness. And Paul boasts in his weakness. We should, too, because when we are weak, then we're strong. Let's pray. Father, we are weak, but we pray that you would work in our weakness. Father, we pray that we might have the joy as believers of seeing these same kinds of things in our lives, the evidence that you are at work through us, uh, that we might have a heart for people to be willing to spend and be spent for the sake of people's spiritual well-being, And, Father, that you would cultivate in our heart a real love for your church that would, at times, be a burden, a concern, even fear over the condition of people we love and care about. Father, we thank you for Paul. Thank you for the great heart with which he served you. Certainly, Lord, no time server, certainly not uh, in it for what he could get out of it. But, Father, there to spend and be spent. We pray, Father, that we might have that same heart and growing measure, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.